Welcome to today's episode of Getting to Know You. I'm your host, Cameron Edward Benton, and on today's episode, I have the great pleasure of introducing you to Brett Kaufman. Brett is an excellent marketer over at Wellspring Media, a bachata dancer and salsa dancer, and probably most importantly to him, a proud Jew. And on this episode, we're not going to talk about uh, how to get improved click-through rate on your emails or how to uh, avoid the spam filter, which is a lot of what Brett normally talks about. Instead, we're going to be really focusing in on his life's mission, which is ending anti-Semitism. Uh, we'll dive into what is anti-Semitism, where does it come from, his own personal journey into how this became such an important life mission for him. Uh, and then we'll go into you know his own struggles with suicide, how he overcame that, and the future of politics. Um, we really dive into so many fascinating topics. He's one of those people that I can have on here multiple times and probably still never get enough of him. Uh, he's an excellent human being and he's somebody that I happened to meet at a party and we dove deep for a couple of hours um, into so many different topics. And so uh, I'm really grateful to get to share his story and message here with you. Um, so without further ado, here is getting to know Brett Kaufman. On today's show, we have Brett Kaufman, who is a partner at Wellspring Media. They're an excellent marketing company, the expertise in copywriting, email, and SMS marketing. And he's a salsa bachata dancer and a proud Jew, uh, per his own words. <laughs> Brett, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I actually never been introduced that way, so I kind of like that, that introduction. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good one, right? It definitely mm -hmm. sets, you, sets you apart. Yeah. And actually, like, with with that, uh, why don't we kind of just jump right into it? I mean, one of the things that I have um, had the pleasure in getting to know you about is your your passion to stop anti-Semitism. And it's something that's come up in a lot of your podcasts is like really your driving force between before your why and why you're so, you know, even committed to marketing and committed to sales and doing all this stuff. Because, you know, I think it's really easy when people look at business things. And in the larger spectrum of like, oh, this person is just doing X, Y, Z to make money. But mm -hmm. in knowing you and seeing your podcast stuff, your vision is a lot bigger than that. And what, if I understand it correctly, your your even attempts and you know not attempts, but your learning of marketing and sales and all this stuff is really about like how do I develop these skills and these networks so that X, Y, Z, so eventually I can do this larger thing. So. Talk to me about anti-Semitism. What's up with that? You know, why is it so important to you? What What is it? And like, how do we how do we spot it? How do we see it? And yeah, wherever you want to pick that. Yeah. Wow. That is a big question, but it's an important question. <laughs> yeah. Anti-Semitism is Jew hatred, um, and it is uh, as old as the dawn of day. It's been around forever, so uh, it's not unique if someone's an anti-Semite because unfortunately, it's been a reality. It is something that. I have experiences personally, but also just like my own history of like where we're from, dating all the way back to Jews being from Judah, which is inside Israel, and um, all the way to modern day, even living in Miami where I've had experiences. Hmm. To dive into it, geez, where there's a lot of amazing places we can start about it. Where would we like to begin on that? Yeah, well, why don't you, I want to say like an almost a very literal definition standpoint. So you said, talk about like anti-Semitism. What is a Semite? And like, what is like, where does that like even a word originate from? If you have a, a sense of that history, yeah. So it's originally from like that area in the Middle East where modern day Israel is, and the definition mm -hmm. is hostile or prejudice against Jewish people. Hmm. So back, and now we can like really dive into like the history of everything. Yeah, I love so, that. Yeah. Um, so this is 
you can't look at the history of 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 the Middle East without interpreting like religious texts because mm-hmm. it's just it's so intertwined. But let's say we do want to separate the two. So sure. religious texts used to be how we were just mapping modern history, not modern mapping history, where people right. were from rough timestamps because the calendars didn't really exist back then with all the mm-hmm. like central tracking like it does now. Right. However, you can track anti um, you can track anti-Semitism all the way back from the time of Passover, where the Jews were leaving Egypt. Mm-hmm. That's something everybody knows. Or if you want to look in more modern day, the time when ancient empires like the Byzantines were around or the Romans were around and how mm-hmm. they came into Israel to then get rid of the Jews that were living in Israel. And uh, that's how we were end up scattered all over the world. So it all mm-hmm. is it's, it's rooted in just such ancient history. And there's this, I remember I used to live in Israel and there was a shirt that you could buy when you're walking down the street that had all these like ancient civilizations that were uh, listed on the right side. And on the left side was like extinct, 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 extinct. And uh, it had, the last one was the modern uh, regime of Iran. And it was said like wow. future extinct mm. to kind of show like there's always going to be enemies that are against us, but they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and why, like, in your own sense of things, because this is something that I've, you know, studied even like growing up as a Christian was like, we were always like, oh yeah, like the Jews have been persecuted throughout history forever. Why do you think that is? And then on the other hand, like, what is it that's allowed Jews to be so resilient through all of that? Because that's such a unique part too. Because you said there's, there's been lots of cultures (laughs) that have survived. And specifically with Judaism, what I find is interesting too, is like, there was never a point in, at least in my knowledge of history, right? Or, or Judaism was like the predominant culture in which mm-hmm. like Christianity was, or Islam was, or where it was just this mass thing. Right. But somehow it has always been like, Hey, we're going to keep like going and doing our thing and defining that. So yeah. T- talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So this is where, when you go into the conversation, people need to be open to the concept of religion just because it's so intertwined yeah. when those that aren't, it's a little bit harder of a conversation. And I'm coming from a background where I will, brought up like not religious at all and i kind of found it on my own this dates all the way back to just like like let's say there was back in the day when god created the created the earth created the universe Mm -hmm. and then there was abraham who was not the first person he had Mm -hmm. to be the first jew from his lineage abraham isaac jacob jacob uh, had a brother named ishmael and that's where or excuse me jacob and asaph and through there uh, Islam came from that side, and then Jacob, mm-hmm. the Jews came from that side. So and then, and then you continue to like trickle down, and that's where the tribes of Israel came from in modern day Israel, and then the Arabs in the Arabia, uh, a little bit more north in the Middle East. So like that's like like it's kind of like understanding how we started to map out, and then around the time of Jesus, Christianity was born. So like everything was so centrally located with the three um, core religions. Core I'm defining as like most popular today or there, right? But just give a little background to people. But in regards to why Jews have been around for like three, 4,000 years, which I just find mind blowing. It's what I found fascinating was that we, the culture is the same. What I mean by that, we still practice the same books, read the same, sing the same prayers. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world, like you can walk into mm-hmm. any synagogue and it might sound slightly different, but we all can track and follow along with what we're doing. And that hasn't changed even though we haven't lived in the same area together for a long period of time, just due mm. to like enemies casting us all across the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and talk to me more about that. Cause I think that's one of the most beautiful things that I've seen with the culture. And even when I was um, really identified with Christianity and was in the religion, like I, there was always a sense of like, wow, like there's this, 
this deep, rich cultural connection that you all have. That is, and I just talked to um, my friend um, Hussein about this with uh, Islam as well, or he has this yeah. kind of like cultural tie to it. Whereas at least the way that I grew up as a Christian, there was no cultural heritage in the same way. And if anything, it was almost this uh, praising of being detached from a cultural heritage that I found. But there's also this sort of like nebulousness. There's a sense of like, you know, for lack of a better word, like being an orphan, right? Where there's like, well, where do I come from? Um, Whereas with you, you have this sense of like, oh, I come from this line of people. And also that you can find those people, you know, anywhere else in the world, right? And you have this larger tie. So like, talk to me, what's that like to have that, I guess that deep ancestral bond in a way, or that deep cultural heritage? What does that do for you? You know, I really like tapped into that recent past like two, three years. Cause I found that, find that stuff so fascinating. So there is a term in Hebrew, Hebrusa means Torah study partner. So when I used to go to Yeshiva, which is basically university for Torah studying, I um, had one of my Hebrusas that showed me this paper that literally had every rabbi and then their rabbi, like from like somebody he knew, right? A lineage all the way back to Mount Sinai. He could literally trace every person that his rabbi and his rabbi and his rabbi studied from. And like that just blew my mind. Like, <laughs> like, like in, yeah. And whether it's a hundred percent true or not, it was just one of those things. It was just like how the documentation that you can go all the way back and they're studying the exact same thing. And like that was exactly yeah. passed down. Like we all could be in the same study hall and we might be speaking different languages, dressing very differently, but still studying the same mm-hmm. texts all the way dating back. Which like that that was absolutely incredible. There's another joke in the Jewish world called Jewish geography, where um, you can literally walk up to any Jew and within like three to five questions, like know somebody that they know. And it's usually like, she's like, where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Uh, Did you go to sleepaway camp? Did you go on birthright? And go, oh, do you know this person? And it's just like, because we're so small and so like everybody like knows each other that you never feel alone. And um, Mm. to that point, I think it's it's beautiful because I've moved around a ton in my life and I only moved to large Jewish cities like to, to live, not to visit, like to, to live. Yeah, yeah. And I know I don't need to know people going down there because I just need to find the local Jewish uh, organizations and they'll put me in the young professional groups and I'll just meet people. It's like it's like mm. always having a built in family to uh, to go to. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very unique and it's very yeah. special for me. Yeah. What is it about like Jewish culture or about like, I don't know, whatever the, I want to say tenets of the religion or the culture, because, and that's a, almost a, another conversation I want to get into um, that I'll maybe sidebar for later is like the difference between those two. Cause I know some people identify with the religion and some people identify with just sort of this cultural heritage of it. <laughs> and, but like, what is it about, like, are there tenants or there like a deep belief system that that's allowed that sort of network to develop and grow in, and, and be sustained in such a way across the world? Because it is such yeah. a unique thing. It's called persecution. It's like mm. we, we, because at most of the places that we, that we live, whenever we have not mm. self-governed, meaning live, this is only, we're only actually in the third iteration of Jews governing themselves in the state of Israel. Because there's always been a history where there's just been an enemy that's come in, kicked us out, and there goes mm. that, right? It was uh, the Babylonians, uh, kicked us out of the first temple, and then we were able to come back. Uh, and then it was the Romans, and then mm-hmm. um, now modern day, right? And so that always is. Um, so point being is, whenever we lived in other areas, when they weren't the friendliest to the Jews, mm-hmm. 
that we always like either lived in ghettos because we were forced into ghettos or forced into communities. That's where like Eastern Europe, the term shtetl comes from, which like my, my, I, I'm what's called an Ashkenazi Jew, which is just a Jew from Eastern Europe. There's Sephardic Jews, but we all come from Judah inside Israel. But anyways, we're very used to living together, buying goods from each other, like having our own schools and, mm-hmm. and doctors and everything was just such an uh, insulated community because we literally mm-hmm. weren't able to live in non areas. It's, 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 I'm not African-American. I cannot relate to what it's like to be an African-American, but from the stories that I know of people that family used to live in like segregated areas, a lot of Jews and African-Americans were not able to go to certain places. And so we had to build our own communities. So that's why a lot of like the African-American community and Jewish community are close because we understand some of Mm. the similar issues that we had, obviously not all the same issues, but in regards to having to live amongst ourselves and build our own like communities together because we couldn't rely on anyone else at that time. Yeah. Now that's, and that's fascinating. It makes a ton of sense. It's like, because of persecution, like you had to create your own cultures and like the yeah. word that I thought you used that was really interesting is like this is self-governance. And because that is to my mind, a lot, almost makes a lot more sense with it is it's like, you really have your own country that is exists and spreads out along countries, if you will, if you want to use the term country, right? Or you have this, you know, community of people. And yeah, and that's, it's, it makes a lot of sense, too, because Jews have been persecuted in such a way where it really didn't matter what you believed, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it didn't matter in the Holocaust, if you believed in God or not, or if you were an atheist Jew, or if you came from a Jewish heritage, you know, if it was just the length of your nose, right, it could be something as simple as that. And just, you know, put you in a, in a camp. And so it, it didn't matter. So it was like, I can see that through those types of things, like there was a deeper bond that went past sort of the religious beliefs or what somebody might want to do with themselves that allowed those kind of communities to, to create. Um, and, you know, wow. just to jump in there, cause you brought up something that um, is always interesting to touch on. Judaism is not a religion. Uh, it's mm-hmm. peoplehood because we come from, so Jew mm-hmm. comes from the tribe of Judah, which so back, back in the day, <laughs> after after the 12 tribes which were the 12 sons right and this was starting the passover story so jacob had all these kids and um then this was where the 12 tribes where they came into egypt this is before the pharaoh decided he didn't like us anymore and then we we basically uh that started the passover story where we lived there for 400 uh I don't know if it was 400, so someone don't come at me with correction. But anyways, we lived there for a while. A new pharaoh rose, forgot everything that Joseph did, and Joseph helped uh, Egypt during a famine. Then the new pharaoh was like, all right, we're getting rid of all you Jews. And so this that started in the Exodus. But during the Exodus post-Passover, we can talk about that whenever, but point being is from there is we were 12 tribes, and each right. tribe had leader that traced their lineage to literally like like the 12 sons that were right. Jacob's kids, 12 tribes of Israel. Then we went into Israel and each tribe, kind of like Game of Thrones, had their own area of lands. Mm. And so every, not every, a lot of the modern day Jews come from the tribe Judah because technically 10 out of the 12 tribes are lost right now. And so there is a what happens often in a family, there was infighting. And so, the, so <laughs> Israel was split. And so the 10 tribes were ruled by one king and they were very mm. vulnerable and they, you know, somebody wiped them out uh, or mm. they lost. And then there is Judah that remained. And then there's like Levi's and then there's um, Cohen's, which are just Cohen's worked in the, in the Holy Temple and Levi's helped support in that regard. And then Judah. 
And so a lot of Jews you meet now, unless they're Cohen or Levi, are from Judah, which is basically mm. saying like, I'm from Miami inside Florida. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's very fascinating. So like point being is Judaism comes from mm. Judah, the people. Right. And ah. so, so, so I, so I, when I was, I was taught this, that Judaism was just thrown in as a religion, just from like, for Western terms, just grouped it all together. But, sure. um, it was just like, you know, you live in a certain area. This is like, these are the rules of the area versus like, oh, this is mm. what we practice because you're, you're born Jewish. Like it's in your blood versus choosing to adopt a religion if you want to, or walk away yeah. from it. You can't really walk away from being Jewish. Apparently, even now, not rabbi, even if you do convert, you're still so part Jewish, but it's one of those things that like, mm. that's why through your mom's line, you're born a Jew. Even if you don't decide to practice, you're still Jewish because it's passed along uh, in your blood. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. Well, that's almost like a, a deeper conversation that, that yeah, I would love to wild. ask about. Well, so because if you're talking about bloodline, like, I don't, have you, have you seen all of the, the 23 and me stuff that comes out? Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's like, it seems like 90% of people have like Ashkenazi Jew in their bloodline, right? And so it's like, all right, so are we like all, you know, Jewish in that regard, right? You know, I think that's yeah. a, a fascinating question. Yeah, and it comes down to how you believe like the world was created. And if you're just going off of sure. like how history started in the Middle East, regardless of what you like believe in regards to faith and how then we expand it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, it, it could make sense. Um, I yeah. think though it's, it becomes... People don't, some, some people don't enjoy going down that route due to the fact that then they, they have a bad connotation with religion. So I always like to separate the two of like, this is not, there's a whole religious side, but yeah. you're just born from Judah. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that came up when you were talking was, uh, Einstein, uh, I don't know if you've ever read his like biography, but like one of the things he <laughs> talked about a lot was he was like very like. I think he was he was an atheist and was very non-religious, but was very much an adamant you know, Jewish supporter. I don't know I don't know what the word for, but he was very very proud of being a Jew. Yeah, and was a huge part of you know his his life and his legacy and and all of that. And he was very non-religious, and that yeah. that's one of the things that is always I think fascinating with me. You know, is that constant? And so I'm curious actually with that because you you talk about going to I would say not. Um, did you call them Torah studies? Um, is that yeah, the, yeshiva. Yeah, yeah. Yeshiva, right? So like, yeah. I, and do you identify for yourself with the religion as well? Or like as with the religious concepts? Or do you do you find it personally more with the, the just the cultural heritage? Like how do you kind of personally identify with it? That's a great question. So now I've become much more religious than I ever have. I grew up so not affiliated whatsoever. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, no, I'm going to digress in a second time because I'm going to finish sure. the point because it, it will give a lot more background. But yeah, I decided to go to Yeshiva because I wanted to understand more of what's in this book that I'm supposed to live by that's supposed mm -hmm. to be God's word. And therefore, I'm supposed to practice it because God gave it to us, right? So, Which to course, clarify, that's the Torah or is that like one of the, the other? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, then the five books, five books of Moses, they're compiled right. inside the Torah. And then there's all these like just different writings after that. But of course, growing up with no connection to it, why would I be like, how is this true? This makes no sense. So I I first became a very passionate Zionist, which is like very passionate mm -hmm. supporter of Zion, Zion being where modern day Israel is. Mm -hmm. And what and I can go into how that happened, but then I was like, I need to understand the other side of it because I before I 
you could put the label of becoming more religious. I was always spiritual, but that means spiritual mm -hmm. is a belief in a higher power. This is my definition of spiritual. Mm -hmm. And so if I believe in a higher power, which is a higher energy, well, who is that energy mm -hmm. behind it? And so for me, Judaism was like, well, th this is where the answer is. Other people can believe, you know, other things, but Judaism was, Judaism was like, here is the answer. So like, mm -hmm. okay, let me go actually open this book up. And I lived in uh, Jerusalem in a cave for three <laughs> months. It was wild. Uh, it felt like I was living in Assassin's Creed if no one's big. <laughs> like, that's what it looks like. And we would spend all, we'd spend like eight hours, nine hours a day studying Torah. And I was also working on my mm. business at the time, which was a whole nother like six hours I was putting in. But yeah, I heard some stories about you taking uh, sales calls on top <laughs> of the, uh, the cave. <laughs> Yeah, it was, like, it was like I was hearing the dope of the rock, like the call to worship and the holy church bells. And I, uh, people were like, what's that noise? My like, God, oh, don't worry about it. So, you know, if you, uh, you buy now, it's a whole fucking process. But it was fascinating to have those conversations, sit down with people that are dedicating their life to this style of living and be like, why? Break this down to me, explain it to me. And I've never felt more welcome to ask questions and to mm. debate and to to pick apart and to get angry and to get frustrated and be like, this doesn't make sense. How do you justify this? My grandma passed away from cancer. How can you say that that was God's intention? It was like, how can you explain that 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust and their kids under two years old? I saw their mass grave. How is that something that God will allow to do? And it was just like such a beautiful, stressful time of being able to dive deep into like why yeah why we believe meaning those people believe the way they did and if you want to believe this way here I, there it's i'm presenting the case and the mm -hmm. most beautiful thing was this beautiful thing that i learned there this is the greatest line i've ever heard and it'll stay with me for life they said you can never be a lawyer you have to be a judge and what that meant was that a mm -hmm. lawyer is going to present the case that gets you to believe the way he or she or they want you to believe a judge has to make a decision based on the facts in front of that person only when you have enough evidence, because you'll never have 100%. That's when you need to decide. You'll never have with 100% certainty the beliefs that you have are true. You'll have enough of it. And then you have to like, that's where faith comes in. You have to then believe in the other side, something you won't understand. And I was like, that's really beautiful. Because these people said, here's my beliefs and here's why I believe it. Literally backing it all up. And they said, there's still this gap that you have to wake up and say, I'm not 100% sure, but I want this to be true. And I'm like, that's, that's a very beautiful way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a that's a that's been a foundational principle of my own belief system, if you will, ever since I was in college, where, you know, we were in I think I was in philosophy class, and we started going over, um, like, just my intro to philosophy class, honestly, and like, just the, you know, going through like, sort of Descartes, and like, going back yeah. and being like, okay, like, right, like, I think, therefore, I am, which his actual definition for people that listen is not, I think, therefore, I am, but I doubt, therefore, I am, right, you go back, and you can question, all of everything. It's like, well, can I even trust that math is true? Well, no, because there could be an evil genie that is actually like manipulating the way that math works. And I'm just like super fucked up. But the only yeah. thing I can't, <laughs> right? It's true. And it's like, and the only thing I can't doubt is that I am doubting, right? That's the one thing I can't doubt. So there is something, whatever that is, is there. But then everything else on top of that is built on belief systems. And yeah. that's where for me, I kind of like pivot to Socrates, if you will, right? Where it's like, you know, I, my fundamental belief is that I don't know anything. And so everything I have is therefore a belief and everything is, you know, jumping into other philosophers, but there's a, you know, ultimately a leap of faith, you know, and there are pieces of evidence, like I'm talking to you and I believe that you're not just an illusion, um, but you could be yeah. right. And, yeah. like, but I'm going to believe that you are because that's the evidence that I have in front of me. And it's the best decision I can make with what I have. 
And I think for me, that always has worked as like a, a grounded place of being because it allows me to stay open-minded and still be able to progress through life without being like schizophrenic, essentially being like, nothing is real and terrified, but also, you know, in a way being like, yeah, well, nothing is like a hundred percent set in stone. Like anything could just, you know, throw me for a loop. Yeah. Refreshing and (laughs) all at the same time. I actually heard um, a very similar conversation um, with this guy. Are you familiar with uh, Alex Hermosi at all? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he had a, he had a, somebody was talking to him about, he became like a born and green Christian at some point and then was really wrestling with it in almost a similar way with you, how you were wrestling with Judaism, like going to different apologetics people. And there's a lot of like, um, similar conversations there. And he was working with his, uh, his, like a Christian therapist because he was really struggling with whether he was going to believe this or not. And the, the psychiatrist or um, therapist ultimately said to him, you know, you know, I think like you have to just make a choice at some point, you know, you can wrestle with these things forever, but at some point, like you either have to make a decision or like live in this ambiguity. And ultimately he chose that, you know, there was nothing that there was, you know, no other future thing. But I think that that, that point of like being the judge and making a decision ultimately with that is I think key to, I don't know, any, anyone in life to figure out who they are and what they're going to be doing with this. Yeah life that we have yeah and it's okay if your beliefs change over time like it just oh yeah perspective it's just they almost like feel like they ought to right if like in some way if your belief isn't changing over time then it's like i I, that's just i don't mind-boggling to me at least yeah i mean one thing i always like one thing i was so it all depends on obviously the people you're talking to in my experience Mm -hmm. with people i've talked to about this topic they in in talking about judaism that um Mm -hmm. they they make you question it like so Mm -hmm. question everything and one of the things Mm -hmm. actually that i question that i love that they always say is question charity meaning Mm -hmm. there's a concept in judaism and other people have adopted it where tithing right so the more you give the Mm -hmm. more you get back so in judaism Mm -hmm. it's 10 percent. you're supposed to give i can't speak accurately on on Islam, I believe it's like 5%. I don't know exactly if Christians have a certain percent. Point being though, it's saying that it's your obligation to give. And then in this case, God is saying, I will return that to you more than you ever could imagine because you're giving like this. So point being is he was saying that like, this is his money. If you believe God is a male, in this case, I'm saying identify as that. And then he's giving you this money because uh, he knows you're supposed to do good with it. But remember it's his, therefore make sure you give to help others and so my identity with judaism because i talk about this a lot with people um is really rooted into community and recognizing i'm part of a team versus like an individual and i think that's really helped me stay centered in the hard parts and we can dive into like why i'm like what i'm working on with anti-semitism it's because like whatever i do in my life no one is going to remember it a thousand years later unless i am like a king which even then maybe they'll read it in a book perhaps Maybe yeah, he's historians. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. And that's like me hitting the jackpot of like that. So the yeah. idea is that if I, if my individual accomplishments are not going to last probably past my great grandparents, like, can you name mm-hmm. you what all your great grandparents' names are? Do you know? No, no like my great grandparents? Your great grandparents. Not, yeah, four generations. No, I don't. I, I could, I could name, yeah, realistically, I could name two because they're the only two that I ever interacted with. <laughs> Right. But that's, that's the only reason why. And yeah. that, that's beautiful. You have that ability to even interact. Like I never met my great yeah. grandparents and 
like that's your family. That's the line you come from. And if you don't even remember your great grandparents, how could people that don't really know you expect to remember what you did? So I was like, yeah, instead of that being a morbid thought for me, I was like, Mm. now knowing I'm a part of a team and using my life to progress the team to make the Mm -hmm. team safer Mm -hmm. is that has been so calming. And like, that is where my, my love of this fight has come from. So before I even became an entrepreneur, I worked in politics for half a decade. And that was the most wild time that I've ever had. And, and let me back, uh, may, may I backtrack? Yeah, yeah, sure. Go, go okay. wherever you want to go. So I'm going to give some context. So it wasn't just like I walked in and I was like, okay, let's work in politics. 2011 was the first time I ever went to Israel. And I was in Hebrew school. It was on a Sunday. And like one of the few times I was ever in class, because normally I was like kicked out. I, was, I got a lot of trouble as a kid. And these people came into my Hebrew school and they're like, hey, there's this program for high school students to go abroad to Israel. Do you want to do it? And I was like, that sounds dope. I get to skip out on school and go to Israel for a quarter. <laughs> sure. So I go home and I tell my parents, we're all eating lunch. And I remember telling them, I'm like, hey, I want to go on this program to Israel. And they were like, literally looked at me and spit out their food across the table. <laughs> and they're like, you're the least Jewish kid that I'm like, we know there's no way you want to do this trip. And I, maybe I was just a defiant 17 year old, but I'm like, I want to go on this trip, damn it. So they were like, all right, fine. You raise half the money at the time it was 8,000. We'll put up the other half. So I sold all my belongings, my wow. collection of Pokemon cards, which were more, probably now <laughs> way more than 4,000. <laughs> And I went to Israel on this program. And this program was, you would spend the morning learning one story from the Torah. It wasn't actually a religious trip, but you learn a story from the Torah because it's it's a mm-hmm. history book, especially in Israel. And then you go to the spot where the story took place. Wow. And you'd rehear the story and you would act it out and you would hike Mount Gilboa. And then you got wow. to act out that you're Gideon and those are your enemies down there. And our enemies, literally our friends would charge up the mountain as the enemies and we would charge down the mountain and we would play fight it. Like, of course I'm going to fall in love with this shit. Like yeah, yeah. I got to act out what, yeah. what the book is telling me, a book that I used to stare at at Sunday school be like, this is so fucking boring. No yeah. wonder I became attached to it. That was my entry into it. And then, mm-hmm. I ended up wearing a keep on seat seat, which for those that don't know, keep imagine like a small skull cap on your head. Uh, yeah. Seat seat are these fringes that you wear. It's under your shirt and it's supposed to remind you of all the mitzvahs that you're supposed to do, the 613. Mm. And I was still eating like pepperoni pizza and like a cheeseburger, which is not what you're supposed to do if you are wearing these artifacts, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the uniform. But I was like, just that's when something just stirred in me, that was actually, I remember this moment more than I'll never forget this in mm-hmm. Israel on a mountain near Masada. We weren't at Masada yet. For those that don't know, Masada is an ancient fortress that uh, around 70 AD, it fell to the Romans. It was one of the last holdouts that the Jews had mm-hmm. when they escaped from Jerusalem. And then uh, they held out for about three to four years. The Romans came and the Jews decided to take their own life instead of being slaves to the Romans. And it's a mm-hmm. story. Uh, that we celebrate and you can go you literally can go to Masada and literally see how they lived. And that was fucking mm. 70 AD. Amazing. Oh, I love this. Wow. Anyways, I was on this mountain near Masada. And I remember sitting there and I was like overlooking this beautiful canyon. And I like felt this gust of wind like go underneath me. And I heard, I can't tell you what the voice said because I actually don't know. I know that sounds like woo-woo, whoever's listening mm-hmm. to it, but I heard something in my mind. And I remember walking back from it and I felt so different. And that was like, like people looked at me like, you look different. And like something in me 
change in that moment at 17. I don't know what it was, but it was like maybe my soul recognition of like, this is your home. Like it feels mm-hmm. first time I ever was like back. Maybe my soul used to live there. I don't know. It was like one yeah. of those very fascinating moments. But anyway, since then, mm-hmm. so then I come back from the trip. I'm wearing a keep and seat seat. I fall into a deep depression because I don't know how to channel this energy. My mm. parents think I'm fucking crazy, so they send me to therapy. And then, then my mom ends up going to Israel herself so she can understand. Like that was her mm. first or second, maybe first or second time there. And then so she went, and then I ended up going back in, uh, to study abroad in 2014. This was 2011, but then 2014. I went back to study abroad at Tel Aviv University, staffed many trips, uh, been there many times, went to um, Yeshiva, like I was mentioning. But it was like this progression of knowing that I, oh, ever since 2011, I knew I was like, in, I had to be involved. I just didn't know how to be involved. And it wasn't until when I came back from 2014, living abroad in Tel Aviv University for the year, that through that depression cycle, through that near suicide, did my... Um, realization of what my purpose was like it came in that darkest chapter which we can get into if you want yeah i'd actually really love to dive into that and something that um you said on a previous podcast that i would love to hear more about and i've i've interviewed uh someone else um actually our mutual friend chris about uh his (laughs) his battle with uh depression and for him the way he describes it is it's like you know there are just sort of out of nowhere there would be for lack of a better word you know voices um, telling him to, or thoughts, um, I don't yeah, necessarily outside voices, but like, you know, voices in your head that are saying like, you know, just kill it, kill himself. Um, and that, you know, he just has to kind of like weather that storm and deal with it. And you said something that like really, really caught my attention in this other podcast where you referred to it as like a sweet sounding voice. Um, and it, that the voice became like sweeter over time. Can you talk about that? Like what was going actually like on for you in, in those moments? Yeah. So I had the most incredible year from 2013 to 14 when living in Israel, uh, studying abroad to Tel Aviv University. I rescued. Is that abroad. when you're promoting and stuff and doing all yeah. that? Yeah. yeah okay. It was the height of my douchiness, which was like such <laughs> amazing. I was, I remember because I was 20 years old and I was standing outside a club, one of the hottest clubs in Israel at the time named Clara, no longer exists. And I couldn't get in because one, I was a broke college kid and uh, you know I didn't have a a bunch of beautiful women with me. That's also another way of getting into clubs uh, sometimes. And so I was like, this sucks. So I ended up becoming a promoter. And then obviously I had access to whatever I wanted, which is a whole other fun world. And then I also like rescued a dog. I worked in the startup world, which Israel's famous for. It was a whole incredible journey. I fell in love. It was a whole thing. But I come back after that amazing year, back to my university at Towson. I'm now a junior. And I was there my freshman year, went to Israel my sophomore year, come back as a junior. And um, I fall, fall into a very deep state of depression because my environment was so different. It was so hard to relate to people, so hard to talk to people. I didn't really know how to express myself. I definitely was not in tune with myself. Like what was mental health? I had no idea what that was. And um, it started where I would start getting like just angry. And I remember being in class and my voices, because Chris is correct there, my voices would be um, shouting matches in my head. And it would be like saying really mean things to me, they're like yelling at each other uh, and saying like very mean things about me to each other. And do you mind like sharing just like what are some of the what are some of the things that they, they would say to you? 
I think it'd be like, you're stupid. Like, what are you doing? And I remember I was in class. I remember like, I could not hear the professor because like, like these voices were so loud. It's literally like, like an auditory kind of sensation. Yeah. It's like, like wow. you're wearing headphones right now. Imagine just like yeah. having like your headphones glued on. You can't take them off. You can't turn them wow. off. Yeah. Cause I've, I've struggled with like really negative thoughts, but I've, I've never had like an, I would say like an audible type of experience in that way. Yeah. yeah it, it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember just like the voices were, so this is what ended up happening. The voices were like really loud. And then after a while, the, the voice, the two, one of the voices went away and the other voice that stayed ended up talking sweet to me. And that's where like more of the seductive voice came from. And it was like, listen, like, I know you're going through a lot of hard times right now. And like, you know, I have a solution for you if you want. And it's like very easy. And, you know, this will like end every, you know, end all your pain. And I was like, you know, it didn't sound so bad. And now we're like, we're in the fall of 2014. I remember it was October. And in the most fucked up game of Clue, I like chose like the weapon, the the room, the time, the date of when I was uh, planning my suicide. And I remember I was so fortunate because another voice could not explain it, came out of nowhere in the head and said, oh, I remember it said uh, something like, you don't need to do this tonight. You can do another night. Just why don't you call the school therapist? It didn't even say don't do it. It, it just like delayed it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just like almost like when we it's like starting a diet tomorrow, right? But it's the it's the opposite effect, right? It's yeah. like human psychology thing. I'm like, just you know, you could do it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah it's all good. Just do it tomorrow. And thank <laughs> God, I was like, wild. Thank God that wow. voice uh, came into my head because I ended up calling the therapist, and I went uh, and I had a one on one session, and it was fine. But what really did it for me, what really helped me, was like, I was in group therapy. Have you ever done group therapy? I have not, no, I've never done group therapy. I've done personal growth type things that have a group element to it, but I've never done like a, a group therapy session. Yeah. Yeah. Group therapy was wild. It was, we were not allowed to talk to each other outside of the group. So literally if I saw you in the hallway of school, could not talk to you, could not say anything to you, had to ignore you, had to walk past you. I don't know why I didn't make the rules. And also we weren't allowed to give each other advice in the circle. All we were able allowed to do was share our experience so imagine it's like a circle of one-upping each other of like the most fucked up things that we're all about to do to each mm. other it was like yeah if you thought that was bad i tried drinking bleach and another guy was like i put a gun in my mouth and i was just like holy shit like this was <laughs> <laughs> it was nuts and i know it sounds bad but i was like, I was like i'm not as fucked up as i probably think i am and it was like mm. that weird perspective shift of like I'm, I have issues, but I'm not drinking bleach like the person next to me is. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that was my, the first sobering moment because very much when you're yeah. in your own depression, it's a spiral. It's a downward spiral. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because for a while, before I even got to the, the, the me picking the day of my suicide, I actually forgot how to speak um, where my, like, my jaw clenched shut. And I would have to walk around with a notebook and I would write out things in order to communicate with people. Being in group therapy actually started to unlock things for me. Cause I was actually able to like start to come through. And then um, it took a very long, it took about another year to actually feel like, okay, again, but that was the moment where at least I knew I wasn't going to commit suicide. So mm, that's a win. Yeah. Was there with your like depression that coming on, was there a, like something that happened that like specifically like, triggered that? Moment? Oh yeah. Like, were, you, were you dealing with like shame for something? Like what was it that like kind of, no. Yeah. So, so this is where I think now that I look back on it because 
I don't know the quote. Someone said the quote where like, you can't see the plan in front of you. You can only connect the dots when you look back on it. I, it, when I left, this was during 2014 in the summer. This was when Hamas uh, launched a war against Israel and it was called Operation Protective Edge, where Hamas, a rec- an internationally recognized terrorist organization that lives in the Gaza Strip, was firing a lot of rockets into Israel. And Israel uh, was using a defense system called the Iron Dome, which I can get into. It, taking a bullet to shoot another bullet out of the sky. Wild. And I left during the war because I was just done in my year to come home. And I felt so hopeless and helpless. And like, you know, they're sending soldiers into Gaza to to stop the terrorists. Like, you know, people are having to hide in shelters. My sister had to go to a shelter. The girl was at the time had to go to a shelter. Like it was like real. And I felt so hopeless and helpless because I couldn't do anything. All I could do was like watch the news, which is like the worst thing you could ever do. And I probably felt, I'm probably sure that really caused it because I like, I knew I couldn't do anything. And then I would have conversations and, you know, no fault to anyone else. I would have conversations and there would be like normal conversations about sports or like girls. And I'm like, there's a fucking war going on. I don't give a shit about this, but I couldn't, I didn't have an outlet. So, of course, naturally, I was very angry. So I started resenting people. So I started pushing away people. Yeah. Which actually came up again, which we can talk about when I recently came back from Poland, like now over a year ago. But um, that that was that was the moment. Like, that's why I, I, I believe I, I fell into depression because I felt very like I couldn't I couldn't do anything to stop uh, terrorists from trying to kill my people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it sounds very similar to. um what a lot of like soldiers uh, deal with, right? When they go to war and then they come back and it's like, like, there's a lot of plays that deal with this concept of, you know, whether it was the Korean war or world war two or whatever, it's like, you come back and it's like, people are just like, Hey, yeah, let's go to the market. And you're like, like, I just watched four of my brothers die. I just watched, you know, all this stuff. It's like, where, like, how do I even assimilate back into a, a culture that everything is just sort of, for lack of a better word, normal or non-chaotic. Yeah. yeah that sounds. So how did you, how did you, ultimately deal with that like how did you how did you find this ability to i would say like eventually assimilate (laughs) into the culture and then keep that sense of passion because you're it sounds like that ultimately that anger you found a way to channel that and use it as a way to make a difference right yeah so i don't know if this is healthy so whoever's gonna listen to this don't take this as like advice you should do but it worked for me when I really want something, like I make it happen. And what that means is that I, so what the most beautiful thing about the Jewish community is that Jew, uh, older Jews will pay for younger Jews to learn about Judaism or to be involved in activism. It's such a beautiful community where it's like, you need a home for Shabbat, come over. You're a stranger, does not matter. Come over, you can stay with me. I have meals for you. You want to go to this conference to learn about Judaism? Go, I got you. You want to go to Israel? I got you. Like you can literally go to Israel or learn about Judaism for free or like little little to nothing basically to the point you're like in your mid-30s it is beautiful so that being said that trip sorry so 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 i ended up finding different conferences that i could go to and this is now my junior year and i would skip on skip out on so much school to fly across the country to go to these different conferences sponsored by jewish organizations and just learn about judaism and eventually that led me into politics because eventually um, all these conferences were surrounded around activism. Here's what we're doing in our local community to help people, Jews or non-Jews. Here's what we're doing on a national level to help strengthen the Jewish standing in the United States, meaning just keeping us safe. And of course, everyone else. Here's what we're doing on an, at a government level for lobbying to help strengthen the U.S. and her allies against her enemies. So I was like, 
I got to then I got to see people who had nine to five jobs spend their money and their time in activism. And I'm like, that's fucking cool. How do I do that? So I ended up bugging the shit out of anyone that I could to let me go to these conferences until I <laughs> stumbled upon this organization called APAC, which is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. And to this day, I only had one true love and that is APAC. And I, I loved, 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 loved working for them. But before I even got, like before I was even hired by them, I um, was a student activist. So at this point, basically what was so cool and this is talking about feeling like you can make a difference. At this point, I'm now a junior and senior in college. And about where are you going to school at this point? Oh, Towson, Towson University. Okay. It's like a yeah, school outside Maryland. I had a okay. communications major, and that was only because the most beautiful women were in communications. I didn't give a <laughs> shit. <laughs> my my like thank God I found politics because I, <laughs> I I'd be like making no money and like have no ambition and but that it, it, you'll see how it all ties together. But basically, like sure. Towson was an hour away from DC by train, mm-hmm. and so I got involved with APAC as a student. And what that basically meant was they would bring us to DC once a quarter, if not more, and we would we would be with like probably four to thousand, four hundred to thousand students in a hotel in DC, and we would spend the day learning from the top most brilliant minds in think tanks, in government, in foreign relations, in foreign mm-hmm. policy, diving into the weeds about the Iran deal, about Hezbollah versus Hamas for the Houthi rebels. Like it was just so cool wow. learning from the most brilliant minds. Yeah. And then at night we would go out and get drunk. And then the next day <laughs> at seven in the morning, they would send us to Capitol Hill to go lobby members of Congress. <laughs> And I was like, here I am, like with a suit wow. that does not fit me, walking into a member of Congress office and be like, listen, Congressman, you got to vote <laughs> on these legislations. Like, what the fuck? They ain't listening to me. Oh, my God. But talk about activism. Like, talk about the ability yeah. to feel like you're making a difference. Because I got to then engage with someone that's close to power, because it's usually a staff member, right? Sure. Close to power about how to actually affect change on something that I loved. Yeah. Yeah. That's where the love of political activism came in. That's where the love of nurturing relationships came in because lobbying, the most successful lobbyists have the most successful relationships. Anything that you want to accomplish in life is down to how, like how beautiful the relationships are. Um, so that's where that lesson came from. And then I, so I was doing all this for APAC and I loved it. We would skip spring break. We would skip summer vacation. Like I was winter break. I was just always in DC. I was always at conferences. I was writing op-eds. I was going on the radio. I was like having debates. I was hosting debates. I would be like marching on Washington. Like it was, it was so fucking fun. I was like, you know, 20, 21, 22. And then, you know, you felt like you had the biggest balls in the world. Cause you're like, I'm making a difference. And you yeah. believed it. You truly believed you were making a difference. And I remember then my senior year, I took an internship uh, with the Republican Jewish coalition. Cause I want to understand what the right, how the right viewed things. And then the second semester, I interned for a Democrat congressman named Congressman mm-hmm. Rupert And I got that internship because it was during the height of the Iran deal. And every day I picked up the phone or I, and I emailed them and I was like, you gotta vote against the Iran deal. And to a point where the person running the office was like, hey Brett, good to hear from you again. I'll pass your note yeah. to the congressman. And uh, one day the guy was like, do you just wanna intern here? I was like, sure. So that's how I got on Capitol Hill. And that was a whole mm. wild experience in itself. Um, which is cool. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, thank you for, for sharing all that. 
God, there's so many things I wanted to ask about that. Okay, so at that point, is that where you are when you're interning for the congressman? Is that where you get the the lesson that like you know what is a win? Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, there there's two great moments from that internship. Number one was I have no idea what policy, which sounds this will this line will age so bad. So future Brett's gonna be shaking his head at me from saying this. I have no idea what legislation I ended up affecting, but my congressman. <laughs> My congressman uh, in the district had uh, sun chips. That's where it was from in Baltimore. Maryland second district was for where the plant of sun chips is from. Okay. And he loved these peanuts in the North Carolina district. It was some Republican. I don't know who it was. I'm glad I don't know who it was. And I also don't Mm -hmm. remember what district it was. And my job as an intern was I would go and trade sun chips for peanuts because their office had better snacks than our office. And we traded, right? Because it's all about the snacks in the office. And apparently that helped bring those two members of Congress closer together. And apparently they worked on something that hopefully was good for the country. So I got to understand lobbying from that perspective. The second moment that was, was I was walking with a member of Congress and I forgot what, maybe it was a Trans-Pacific Partnership Act or something was happening that was like really intense. And I was, and I was asking him to like explain, like, like, what are you trying to achieve from this bill? And he was like, he was like, a win in Congress is not getting all these things accomplished. A win in Congress is getting this much, which is like an inch for your district. And it made politics all about a game of inches versus like these mass wins. So when you hear someone on the street, you're like, I'm going to be the greatest, like someone running, like I'm going to change the world. It's like, shut the fuck up. You are going to get inches and eventually inches will add up. But that's what you're trying to do is accomplish inches. So it was a little deflating. I'm not going to lie, but um, I really appreciate the raw honesty that, that he, yeah. that Congressman gave me. But yeah, that was, that yeah. was those two moments. Okay, cool. And then, so from there, cause it sounded like, from listening to your other podcasts, like you that made a pretty substantial impact on you on like just a sense of kind of like you said, like almost a reversion back to that sense of hopelessness. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm working. I feel like I'm making a difference. I'm doing all these things. I'm talking to people. I'm feeling all this feels really awesome. But then you're like, you're telling me all of this energy for like an inch of progress, which yeah. I can imagine feels like that's just like not satisfying. It's not enough. And you also mentioned like, right when you're kind of in this whole politics game, you're realizing like how much of this stuff is like both these sides are just ridiculous, which I think from my experience of our generation and and Gen Z, it's like, everybody's like, yeah, this whole thing is just ridiculous. So I'm curious if you do this, but it sounds like you're even your mode into entrepreneurship and marketing and all this stuff is to find a way that makes a more effective change. And so I'm curious, like, how do you see if at all, like this new wave of entrepreneurship, of social media, of content creators, of all of these different people who are much more skilled, I would say, getting messages across and influencing mm-hmm. people in a massive way outside of politics? How do you see that kind of changing the, the political landscape over the next like 10, 20 years? That's a fantastic question. So after I left Capitol Hill, I ended up working at APAC. That's when I actually like was like on the payroll for three years. And I was, I, I, I was cold calling over a hundred people a day, sending my own emails and texts. And like we were talking about earlier, raising gifts between 1800 to $100,000. And I ended up raising over $3 million, like, like meaning like gifts that I solicited to close. And it was so fulfilling, but APAC was bipartisan, like literally to a T 50, 50. So why that's relevant is because um, I got to learn how to take a message 
and say the exact message, but slightly different to someone that bleeds red and the same thing to someone that's so liberal. And I had to then get both of them to agree to give this, my organization, re you know, not revenue, money, donation. They, you don't even get a tax write-off unless you give like $100,000. You don't even get a fucking t-shirt. You just get a little pat on the back for doing good. And that helped foster the mission of strengthening the US and Israel. So it was there that I actually started to understand copywriting and rhetoric and messaging and how to say the exact same thing differently to different people, depending on what they needed to hear. Hmm. And that was the best marketing training. That's better than any course I've ever bought in my life. And it's very fitting to what you just asked me. Yeah, that reminds me. No, yeah, for sure. I mean, that just reminds me of the book, which I'm pretty sure that you have read. I think I got it from um, Wellspring's social media was uh, uh, Words That Work. Um, yeah. where we talked yeah. about that. That is like the key message, right? It's just like, it is not about what you're saying. It's what about, what about, it's about what people hear. 100%. If we're going to change anything, you have to understand that. I think so many people, whether it's in a relationship or whether it's a <laughs> widespread message, right? They, they completely uh, disregard that idea and it's, it just costs them everything. Oh yeah. Anyway. So to your, to your question though. Yeah. This is where the danger. So we have never lived in a time where influencers, regardless how I actually feel that name, but influencers have the ability to actually impact messaging, if not more than middle tier publications. Cause it still hasn't reached like CNN or Fox news or that kind of, but like middle tier, right? Like you, they, some of these people that have millions of followers, the difference is it's not about like, let's say middle tier publication has even more subscribers. The difference is when you follow someone and buy something from someone, you're going to follow that person, especially if they actually impacted your life. And so there's never been a time where people have been this influential with this massive following, this many of people and the ability to impact messaging like this so fast. And we're in a very exciting time and also very dangerous time due to the fact that one wrong word that you say can literally impact millions of people and their beliefs. And if you are an influencer with that much following, you now are looked at as having to be educated on everything because you're going to be forced is actually the word to use to speak out on things that you're not educated on because you have this much of a following and this much um, of an impact on all these people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that I think is, is really interesting because there are so many uh, actually, I would love to get your take on this. Like, what is your take on, uh, for lack of a better word, I, I hate using it because it sounds almost pejorative, um, but like, what is your take on cancel culture? Because one of the things that I think has come from that, right, is this, is it's created a, and I don't think it's, I don't think it is where it will end. And I think even podcasts like this, I'm hoping her to push back against those kinds of ideas, but it prevents people from asking hard questions, right? If yeah. you have somebody who is anti-Semitic and they are, not aware that they're anti-Semitic, right? They have beliefs that were that were passed down from their family, from their culture, from whatever it is that are anti-Semitic, but don't know that. And if they're in a public space and are not able to ask a question or make a mistake without losing their entire livelihood, right? Yeah. And be able to be like, oh, fuck, I fucked up. I can learn from this. Like, 
then there's no space for growth. And then people are also afraid to speak up and make those mistakes and learn and grow, right? And we, we're like, we're dancing on this edge and nobody's actually participating in this. So what what's your take on, on cancel culture and like how, if at all, can we, I don't know, find a, a better way of, of dealing with mistakes that are going to keep growing and growing as, as social media grows and expands? Cancel culture will be around until it's no longer profitable for people. Hmm. And what I mean by that, it's like, Look at like, if you just study marketing, we were in a wave, I guess we're still in the wave of like the anti-marketing. I'm not like those other coaches. I give it to you. Mm. Uh, and that was like, then it became so normal because everyone started to talk that way as well. So I believe cancel culture is a byproduct of also like, I mean, there's the roots of it makes sense. You want to get rid mm -hmm. of someone that's absolutely awful and have done awful right. things. But with anything, without it being properly controlled, it can it, it's caused a lot, a lot of damage. So until it's until it's no longer profitable, it'll exist. How do you make it? Um, how does that change? There then needs to be a group of influencers, kind of like the United Nations, that's not corrupt, that can come together and create <laughs> their own governing around social media. Because Congress is trying to do it, but do you really want to let? old people that no. don't use social media dictate what Dude, the rules are don't use email i remember I, this, there was a report that came out like i think it was four or five years ago but that some some person in congress had literally never opened an email and this was like four years ago and like had always had his assistance like how can you possibly be like influencing any part of our world if you were that disconnected at this point it just is mind-boggling <laughs> it's absolutely nuts yeah yeah well and so with that, I'm, I'm curious because um, almost kind of going back to like the original question with with the way that I feel like marketers and entrepreneurs and social media influencers are able to impact, they, they have a greater understanding. Like I even think about like how much like direct marketers know. And I see like, you know, I still get fucking bombarded because I, I don't unsubscribe to things like I should from some like, you know, campaign that I, you know, sent money to years and years and years ago. Yeah. And I get like, you know, every day it. You know, I get some email about the world falling apart because XYZ thing is going to happen, right? And they're going to match my donation by five times. And I'm like, these people just don't even know how to market effectively. Like at, at this point, like this probably worked at some point, but like you're not building any trust. Like it obviously clearly comes across as BS unless you're totally, you know, in this extreme mode. And it's like, there's so much more effective ways for these different politicians and stuff to be getting out there. I mean, even you look at people like AOC, whether regardless of what you think about her, she has a, an effective way of like communicating and, and touching a bunch of people um, because of it. And I've, I haven't actually signed up for her, her email messaging, but like, I remember her Twitter thing. She talks about that, how, how it's like, yeah, I don't do those, all these scare tactics. I, I tell people basically what we're doing. I let people know. And it's very, very similar to like how, you build an email list uh, now, which going into kind of what you do with Wellspring and, you know, the importance of email marketing. Like, I'm curious about how, how do you see like what you're learning in email marketing, all these kinds of things being able to start to be used effectively by politicians and lawmakers and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, you bring up a good point with AOC because I think she's scum and I'm happy mm -hmm. to say it on, on record because she voted yeah. against Iron Dome funding. And okay. the Iron Dome funding is that missile defense system that literally mm. like saved like my sister and the girl I was dating at the time and my friends. Wow. There, and she voted against it. Uh, and you're voting against saving lives. And she, you know, read about why she voted against her whole claim was like, Israel's doing bad things. Like you're voting against a defense system to stop inbound rockets. Like there's a mm. different ways of doing that. So she is not a fan 
of, of the Jews. You're not a fan of her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, she's not a fan of her. Yeah. But to your point about like how she's communicating her messaging, yeah, she, yeah, she yeah. also knows how to talk to our generation. So that is because she is our age. So that is uh, an efficient mm-hmm. tactic. I mean, for me, the difference is the way to win in Congress is just getting reelected. And the way mm-hmm. to get reelected is either you have all the followers or you have all the money because money buys airtime and airtime buys votes. So yeah. some of these member of Congress don't need to be able to appeal to us. They just need to mm. be able to get enough votes to get elected. And then that's mm. it. So that's why it's like, it's, it's like, I don't, Congress will be the last place I believe to adopt this because mm. they don't have to do it. It's not as much of a push to do it. Mm. Because even if you look at the general election, right? So when we were talking about presidents, the average voting demographic, our, our age group is the least voting demographic. Millennials barely turn out to vote, and which is so honest, so irresponsible because we're um we're the ones that complain the most, at least vocally on social media. <laughs> but like, did you vote? They're like, no, and I'm like, okay, like, shut up, like, yeah, yes, express your views to me, but like, if you didn't actually take action to do anything, like, I, okay, right, right. so the uh, most of the voters are are our parents' age and up, right? Mm. They're at least forty and up. Those are people that listen. To political radio those are the ones that listen mm. watch actually so political tv subscribe i mean oh every direct marketer's dream is i have a conservative mail lister because they can send anything to those people about survival mm. or like the government's going to come to take your guns and those people will buy it because <laughs> they're so you know that's their thing but yeah. it shows how they're the most passionate in regards to protection of their rights so mm. they know how to speak to those people the um mm. i believe a politician does not need to change how they speak until they're threatened with losing an election. So you mentioned that like millennials, for example, don't, we don't vote in general. Uh, I vote, um, but that's a whole other conversation. And I think that that's a lot of it is coming from this sense of like hopelessness, right? Which, sure. um, you know, we look at, you know, this phase of like, Hey, yeah, we, we've seen the left, we've seen the right, we see all these extreme people and there is sort of no one to vote for. Um, there's nobody that is like, you know, it's like, well, you know, in a way, like it doesn't matter because both of these sides to, you know, even something you mentioned before are are corrupt or wrong and are just, you know, in their own self-interest and don't really seem to be actually caring about, you know, the things that matter to me and, you know, somebody who can have a nuanced opinion and all of those types of things. And so I'm like wondering for, for millennials or for people, because you are somebody who is, um, has found a way to find obviously issues or things that you're passionate about that lead you to voting. And for myself, and I think for so many people in particular, like, I just like, don't trust any sort of news source for the most part at this point, right? Whether it's like CNN or Fox news or all these different things. And, you know, what, regardless of what people think about him, like, you know, that's where Joe Rogan, I think comes in because you have these three hour long podcast with a politician or whoever might be where it's like, oh, I can actually like see and understand this person. I'm not just getting some sort of, you know, thing dictated to me, even though there's like bias, but you're, you're finding a lot more podcasts and you know, these types of things to pull into, but it's still like, there's so many issues, you know, in the world globally and at home and all this stuff. Like, how do you sort through the noise and, and find signal that you feel like you can actually trust and move forward to? And like, how do you, how do we develop that even skill set to, to discern through bullshit and then, you know, find something um, that we can maybe trust and and move forward with. Yeah. So uh, what is there? The, there's a 
there's a phrase that if you want to make the most money, you have to be the closest to the money. So that's why people yeah. actually like trade the stocks, uh, work in finance, make more than usually most other people. It's similar yeah. in politics. If you truly want to know what's going on, you have to be in the fight because you actually get to understand mm-hmm. the nuance of what's happening. But obviously, a lot of us aren't doing that. So then you have to educate yourself on what um, what lean, meaning the political stance is the publication that you're reading. So mm-hmm. CNN is left-leaning. They've gone more left, especially mm-hmm. when uh, President Trump was in power. Fox News has gone more right than ever mm-hmm. before. MSNBC is, is very left. Um, Wall Street Journal is, is center-right-leaning. So you just have to like understand what you're reading. So literally what I will do is I will then take a center-right and a center-left. Like Washington Post is, is center-left-left. And let's say I take the Wall Street Journal, which is center right and the Washington Post, which is center, center left. And then I'll read them together and I'll literally just try to find the same articles and understand yeah. what they're saying and see where the difference is, because then you'll start to pick up where the spin's coming from, because there's going to mm. have to be some sort of facts in there. This happened right. at this time, blah, blah, blah. Then you have the, right. the editor's opinion, which always right. seeps in. So then if you're able to at least pull, it's tedious, it's unfortunate, but if you're able to at least pull and be like, okay, this is this, that's good. A lot of people don't have time to do that. So then what I recommend they do is go to think tanks because what I love about think tanks and publications like that is they are paid by a government to come in and solve problems. So therefore, they you can one, know where they more where they lean based on what what cabinet, like what government hires them. And then they're also experts on certain topics. So because of that, if you want a really good in-depth briefing on Iran, what's happening there, you can literally read because these people are scholars on that specific topic and they'd have mm-hmm. podcasts on there they read the you know, they write these articles and essays on there and then you 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 remove the news and you're actually just studying the facts it's like reading a medical journal journal mm-hmm. so um think tanks are a fantastic way of, of of getting deeper on a topic that's so interesting it almost makes me wonder if eventually there will almost be a shift to less focus on uh I don't know, the Congress people I follow or the news source and more of it's like, hey, you know, we're I'm subscribed to like these think takes because I'm like interested in these particular issues. And so these are the things that I'm like influenced by rather than just kind of like old school. Because I feel like there's got to be some sort of change that actually happens because I don't know, everybody's fed up with it. And usually at some point there's going to be some shift, I think, from that. Yeah. And I, I'm, are you familiar with Mr. Beast at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So like, like I am, I am pretty convinced that at some point he's going to become the president of the United States. I mean, he already has like 120 million subscribers on Instagram. He's had you know a video that's hit you know more people than the Super Bowl, and just his you know he's 24, you know, and when you have all of those 18 year olds and 16 year olds who are watching him now, and they're 30, and then you have all of their kids who are still watching him, you know, it's I just feel like we're going to see a, a very very different and interesting world. Yeah. So this is a perfect thread to go down because that is talk about the future politics. Influencers are the future politics, entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. that grew up. So that's what I was saying. We've never lived in a time where we've had this amount of people being able to gain this amount of followers and actual that real influence. So I don't I doubt Mr. Beast identifies as an influencer, but let's call him that because he literally has influence. Right. That's one of the things I talk with people about is just they have, you know, an influencer just means that you have influence. Like we were a hundred people or a hundred million people, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, keep going. exactly. So anyways, those people, you talk about how you can actually like, um, 
politics is going to shift rapidly because when those people run, they're already running with a built-in platform. Hmm. And so then when those people actually do do something, like President Trump, regardless how you feel about him, he one of the reasons why he was so successful was because of the fame he picked up beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. He was so well known. And so the idea is that he was he's really old when he did that. Imagine mm-hmm. Mr. Beast decides to do that in six years when he's 30. Right. And then he'll have even more following and younger than than so point being is like that's the shift, which also is the danger because then those people that are running, if you're an influencer, you actually now have to start acting like you're an expert on many other things because you are looked at as that expert. That's where the real issues like mm-hmm. lie. And that's why it's so important. And this is actually a project I'm working on now, which is just, is something that I'm so passionate about, where mm-hmm. there was it was two summers ago, there was another war that was happening in Israel. Again, Hamas decided to fuck up everything and just launch a war. That's <laughs> but um one of my uh, one of the influencers uh, that I'm friends with has a lot of followers. And mm-hmm. that person accidentally said the wrong thing. That person did not say anything mm-hmm. anti-Semitic. That person said something that wasn't correct with the context because that person didn't understand the history because that person's an expert on, on something else. Why would they be an expert on right. foreign relations? Right. But that person has a massive following. So now that person's followers all believe the narrative that that person said. And I had to go in and do more damage control and be like, listen, like, this is this is what's wrong with what he said here, the facts. And that person was very regretful for that. Hmm. But the problem was that damage was done. Hmm. And so oftentimes influencers are forced to speak out on social issues, issues around the world, whatever it is, because of their following and their followers look at them as actual leaders, like right. people look at. Uh, politicians, basketball and players. Now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now, yeah. now you're forced to be experts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'm actually kind of curious as you say that. Like, I'm wondering if there is, like, the appropriate pivot and almost a full circle of what we talked about of of influencers shifting from a place of like, hey, I am an expert to being like, hey, I don't know, and like actually leading from that place of saying like, hey, I don't know. I'm going to ask a bunch of like these people about it because that's ultimately what would make a really, really great leader, right? Is that they're looking at issues of like, yeah, I don't, I'm not the expert in any of these things. There are a bunch of experts on these things and I'm going to listen to them. And then ultimately I'll make a decision or we'll find a way to make a decision in a group way. But like, you know, I'm not the expert. And I wonder if that's like the, the pivot that people are going to have to start making. And I wonder if that will be more effective. I know it would be more effective for me. Um, 100%. For sure, because it, <laughs> So to that point, that's exactly what something I'm working on. I realized I didn't even get into it, which was um, yeah, it's okay. I was like, I'll have to come have you come back on again because there's like a zillion other questions that we probably won't have time to get into, and you know, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm working on is um, a trip. So what I loved about APAC and why APAC is so effective is that APAC would take members of Congress, future members of Congress and influential people in the community to Israel so they could see it through their own eyes. They would also meet with members of the Palestinian Authority so they could talk to everyone and like form their own opinion. But here you're going to the place that you're expected to vote on with you, yeah. you know, because you vote on foreign policy issues. Therefore, you have to be educated. Let's bring you there. Mm. And then they brought people. So the most beautiful about that trip was uh, they brought um, African-American like a specific trip for African-Americans. So relating how Israel's story to the African-American community, a separate trip for Hispanics, LGBTQ community. It was just like, didn't like all these different, doesn't matter what 
your background was. It was mm-hmm. how do we share our story with you and find commonality? And then they would come back from the trip. What they would end up doing was that they would build events with each other. And now the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community, because like APAC is for Jews and non-Jews, because it's a huge evangelical community. There's a huge, just everyone's in that in this tent. But anyways, they would have events where it'd be the APAC community and the African-American community. So like, how do we support you with what you're doing? How do you support us with what we're doing? So we built bridges, right? So mm-hmm. we understood each other, which is beautiful. I'm trying to do something similar where I'm bringing influencers to Israel and Poland so they can see it with their own eyes so they can understand anti-semitism as best as one can understand anti-semitism and then one more entrepreneurs obviously like a mastermind get to connect with each other which is just beautiful that should be happening then you come back to your hometown and then we are able to then um help you with what you're working on you're able to help us with what we're working on because it's not an if it's a when there will be another time where there will be unfortunately a war and this person might have to speak out again. If that person says the wrong thing again, I got to make sure that person's educated. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. so let's, so let's make sure that you don't say the wrong thing. So that's a whole idea. How do I bring you to these areas? How do you get to see it? How do you get to see what our story is and how it relates to your story and we can build bridges together. And then that, that is a way of bringing not only educating influencers to talk about the current issues that they're facing, but when those people end up running for Congress, they're already educated on this issue. Yeah. And so it's even easier to then have a real conversation with them about facts versus having to start over for like, this is what this is. And now tomorrow yeah. you have to go vote on that issue when you had one day of education. That's what happens. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember uh, when I was in college my senior year, and this is one of the greatest gifts I ever had was um, we had a professor who took us to a Harvard national model united nations uh, which is essentially where we all pretend to be the united nations and mm-hmm. i was in college at a very small christian university uh like there were a hundred people in my graduating class a couple hundred people in my graduating class very small and you know we would have all these conversations and i had no real sense of like you know i was like i was whatever smart within my group but i had no idea of you know comparing so when we went to these big schools it was this gift because I was giving speeches in front of like Harvard students and Yale students and working on creating laws with these people. I was like, Oh, I'm like as good as all these people. This was like, so that was like a really, you know, light bulb moment for me. Um, But, you know, one of the things I realized when I was there was like, there is so much happening. Like this law gets made that has zillions of things in it that no one is able to fully read. And they're voting on it with this timeline and all of these things. And it's like, what in the world like there's just there's it just like almost doesn't make sense uh as a way of like creating a law because there's there's not any way for us to really you know know and and there's such an an encouragement to also be active in a creating a law around something that doesn't actually let's say matter to you right yeah if i'm if i'm in a country and it's like we're voting on this issue that really doesn't impact me and my country at all i might still become involved because it's just like well i'm there (laughs) yeah right and it's like really what i should be probably doing is just abstaining and like allowing the people who actually like it really matters to to like actually deal with it and come up with a solution yeah why and this i think we'll circle back to i know a a great story that you have why israel and poland like why do you want to take them to those two places so israel because you need to understand the history of the region and the surrounding region and the threats to Israel, Mm. also the politics around it, right? So it's like, (laughs) 
when you talk about two state versus one state versus now three state, because there's there's so much nuance that we won't have time to get into. But mm. you need to understand if you're going to vote on it, you need to understand what's actually happening. Because when you hear someone say like, oh, why isn't there a two state solution? First off, you know, first off, the conversation that's not being said was like two states with who? Because mm. you have Israel and then you have Palestinians, which are a subset of Arabs. And then Arabs, you have Shiite and, and, and Sunni. So there's all these different like groups inside of it so like it's not like you're you're not just having two people two parties agree there's so many thousands of years of history so it's like you need to understand that and then you also need to recognize how small israel is and also i want them to to understand how uh like your phone is made from israeli technology right so mm. a lot of the cures that we have came from uh israel because they share <clears throat> a lot of what apac does is lobby for strategic cooperation so what israel develops the us provides funding for and then israel shares so like california their drought is helped being solved because of water irrigation from Israel. Israel's figured out a way to recycle water so there's no drought. Israel's a desert. Right. Created into a beautiful country. That's just on like, hey, influencer, here's how this is literally impacting your life right now. You're driving, oh, you use Waze, that's Israeli. Oh, your computer, that's Israeli technology. Your phone, blah, blah, mm. blah. Like, here's yeah. how the modern days, and it's it's just to show that our countries are so intertwined together, and here's how it's helping our lives. Mm. Poland because of the Holocaust. And you need to just understand that story because what happened to the Jews uh, is unfortunately happening to other groups. And the idea is that those other groups are maybe not as always represented in regards to their genocide that they're going through. So it's not just like, look at what happened to the Jews, but it's like, this is what happens when genocide takes place. <clears throat> and it's it's a very... It's a place of genocide that you can still go to and like see it. There's genocide that happens all over the place, but there's unfortunately there's those places harder to go <clears throat> go to that's safe. Here you can actually see like the camps. Yeah. So because of that, they need it's it's not you're not just educating them on like why this happened, but it's also like how when good people do nothing, but more importantly say nothing and never speak up, this is what could happen. Yeah. So it's a lesson of saying neutral is still evil. Mm -hmm. You have to be educated so you can speak out against hate and so you know how to speak out against hate and um showing them just like what six million people that were wiped out of the earth like what that experience was like and how that happened uh, and then yeah. how we can help stop obviously genocides that are happening to other people right now mm -hmm. yeah can, and can you say more about that with like you know how how do we speak out against hate and how do we identify hate because i think you know kind of circling yeah. back to the anti-semitism stuff there's a lot of stuff that you know for me growing up as a you know white christian boy in suburbia in southern california like i didn't know certain things were anti-semitic you know and it was just like oh like that belief system comes from like this thing this pamphlet like a thousand years ago that was sent down to like you know about jews you know eating children in you know the backwoods of some place or that they own all of the money uh across the world or control of the money or like there, there's these constant themes that have come through that i think so many people it, it's easy to have like a cultural i know back part like I, I met some guy um that i knew who was born and raised uh somewhere in the middle east and he started spouting off about like you know the, oh everybody knows that the jews control um all the finances in the world and it was just like well, like where, where did this come from? Like, how did that, how did that even like assimilate yeah. into your culture? Like, so can, 
can you talk a little bit about that? Like, where does where do these things come from? Like, how are these things tied to hatred? And then, like, how do we speak out against them? Yeah, you well, you have to be educated, which is a hard thing because, like, what's that actually mean? How do you become educated? It's also like mm-hmm. pull it back. You have to question every single belief you have about anything, right? How do you right. know what you believe is actually the right thing, or is passed down back from your parents or your community, yeah. or your society, and the way of going through that process is by experiencing other cultures and experience other people and dating outside your group. If that's something you want to do and that, or like having friends outside your group point being is you need to experience other things to, yeah. to know. Cause if you grow up and all you see is the same thing, of course, that's going to be, you're, you're only going to adopt what your environment yeah. is. So that's the first thing you already have to be open-minded. And um, I already recognize that I cannot get a lot of people to ever change their mind, but if I can get the change makers who are attracting other open-minded people, that's yeah. just what I need. Those are the people I'm going after. That's the target market. Yeah, high, so, high leverage people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the person that lives in a very sheltered community, I'm just calling out the Midwest as an example, being like Central America, that's all they do. They never travel. They just you know, grew up in that small town. They're going to have a much different view of the world than someone that's traveled the world. Yeah. Uh, no matter what they see on the internet. Right. So you have to one, have an open mind. Number two, then you have to know what to look for. So a lot of these anti-Semitic tropes are rooted in very long history. So then you have to have Jewish friends and have the conversations with them. Hey, I heard this. Is this true? Like Joe Rogan recently got in trouble for saying Jews have all the money. And like he got a lot of backlash because he's that's the wrong thing to say. Right. And so you have to be educated on what you're saying, because I I. I don't believe he's anti-Semitic, but he said something that has a very bad connotation to it. Right. And again, his followers now, but now his followers can't unhear what he said. So mm-hmm. you per- people have to like, you have to educate yourself, which means you have to want to be educated. They have to find people you can ask questions from in order to learn from them. Like you would do with anything. You hired Chris right, right. to get better at fitness. Right. Right. It's the same thing. So the people that aren't open-minded, I can't do anything about it, but you have to be open-minded. And then yeah. from there, you have to present yourself as a resource and say, come to me with any question. I would love to engage with you on this. Yeah. So for somebody who wants to understand anti-Semitism more and like, what are the best like resources to go to? I mean, are there like, I don't know, what was it, particular websites or, you know, organizations or uh, people groups or like, you know, those kinds of things. So, I mean, obviously you can talk with your friends about them and, and speak with them. Do you recommend that as like the the primary way if somebody wants to dive into this more and understand all this more? <laughs> yeah. Number one, uh, educate. So resources, APAC. So go to their website. You can subscribe to a great uh, email newsletter called Jewish Insider. So basically what it does is talk about all these things happening in politics from a Jewish lens, mm-hmm. kind of like understand yeah. how, it, how it affects us. Then I would also, if you're Jewish, like get connected with local organizations like the federations, Jewish federations, um, and then different um like JNF. So that's if you're Jewish, if you're non-Jewish, uh, seek out other Jewish friends. Cause they'll be yeah. like, it's like the best person to learn from is that resource. Mm-hmm. But for you to be like, for that person to be educated on anti-Semitism, but which really also means it really starts at its core with understanding what's going on in Israel think tanks. So mm-hmm. FDD foundations for defense of democracies. They're a great one. So there's think tanks like that. There's APAC Jewish insider, those kind of publications, you at least get to read and understand it. And then you need to ask someone to be like, what's this actually being? Can you explain it to me? Got it. Cool. 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 Um, and I guess along like a similar lines, even though this is kind of backtracking a bit. Um, if somebody was like interested in, I don't know, becoming Jewish or becoming like, you know, becoming a part of that, that culture of that history of that lineage, 
is there a way to do that? And how, how would somebody go about that if they were I don't know, curious about wanting to be plugged in some way or even just be kind of immersed in the culture and, and learn uh, more directly from those experiences? Yeah, I go, like find Jewish friends and they'll invite you Shabbat meals. That's like the best way because it's like okay. Shabbat meals and every Friday night dinner mm-hmm. that you can that you can like go to and you can experience the culture and we get together every Friday and have a beautiful meal and talk about life for non-Jews. I'm sure you can Google organizations that like have cooperative events between Jews and non-Jews and like plan mm-hmm. events together. So you can like learn about that community. Mm-hmm. Politics is always like a great way. So you're always involved with your local politics. And from there, you'll always find people that are involved mm-hmm. in the foreign policy arm. And from there, you'll uh, be able to find people that are involved in like pro-Israel activism. So that's always a good one. APAC is another mm-hmm. phenomenal one because they have local chapters in most of the big cities. And that's a bipartisan issue. So it doesn't matter how mm-hmm. left or right you are, you can go there and you can learn about the issues. So I would definitely seek out your local APAC chapter. That is huge. That's mm-hmm. a very cool. important one to be part of. Very cool. Well, Brett, this has been such, such an awesome conversation. Uh, we went so many different places and there, I have literally probably a couple hundred other questions that I could ask you. Um, so I'll have to have you back on again and we'll talk yeah. into more topics, but this was such a pleasure. Thank you for, for jumping on here and, and talking with me. Where can people like find out more about you or follow you or that kind of thing? Yeah, uh, my Instagram, which is Brett, B-R-E-T-T, Kaufman, K-A-U-F-M-A-N, the number's 26. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Well, uh, give Brett a follow. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on. You got it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Getting to Know You. If you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I did in making it for you, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. It would really help the show out. Additionally, if you'd like to stay in touch, consider following me on Instagram at Cam Edward Benton. That's Cam, C-A-M-E-D-W-A-R-D-B-E-N-T-O-N on Instagram and YouTube if you want to follow the show on there as well. Once again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening, for taking the time, for being curious. It means the absolute world to me. So thank you from the bottom of my heart.